Okay. Again, welcome. Uh, we are in week, let me see which week it is, week four. We are in week four in this new series that we've started called Jesus Is. Um, we're going through the gospel account of John, the apostle John. Jesus' arguably best friend, closest friend, um, penned this gospel with the help of the Ephesian church. Um, and it really is um, him, uh, like his, his whole agenda with this whole gospel is that we would believe that Jesus is the son of God and that we would experience life, abundant life in his name. Okay, and we talked about how like the, the reason why we're going through this is because what we believe is really important. The things that we believe, they're like the software that our life runs on. It, it, our beliefs, they influence our behavior. So we're going through the gospel of John with the agenda um, the reason this series is called Jesus Is is because we want to know Jesus is what? And each week we're talking about different aspects, different things, different, different um, beautiful characteristics of Jesus, the Son of God. Um, this morning we're going to be talking about Jesus as the Messiah, okay? <clears throat> so um, for the sake of time, I'm just going to jump in uh, this morning. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to pray for us uh, before we read the scriptures, okay? Will you join me? Father in heaven, thank you for um, the scriptures. Thank you for speaking to us. Um, Thank you for your love and your grace, Jesus. Spirit, thank you that you are with us and you help us see the love of God in Jesus. And my prayer this morning for each of us um, as we were talking about this morning, is that we, rid- we wouldn't be people who remain kind of stuck in sin or brokenness or fear, um, but that we would be free men and women to enjoy you, obey you, and operate like you, Jesus. So would you put the words in my mouth? Would you take any words you don't want said out of my mouth? Um, I want to honor my brothers and sisters in this room. God, so please... Uh, speak to us, Holy Spirit. Encourage us, challenge us, and more than anything, help us to see Jesus more clearly. I love you, God. Amen. Okay, so uh, John chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 35 through 42. Okay, I'm in the ESV translation. If you're not in the ESV, it'll probably be easier. The words will be up there for you. You can follow along that way, okay? Here we go. Uh, verse 35. <clears throat> Some of this will sound familiar from last week. The next day, again, John, that's John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. Okay, so picture this, John the Baptist with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus walking by, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. You remember last week we talked about Jesus as the Lamb of God. You can catch up with that um, on the podcast if you like. There's a lot more depth, but basically what he's saying is that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world for God's people, okay? So John the Baptist, chilling with two of his disciples, Jesus walks by, and again he says, behold the Lamb of God, verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Uh, the 10th hour quickly would have been about 4 p.m. Um, if you ever read in the scriptures where it says like the 10th hour or the 6th hour or the 5th hour or whatever, what they're talking about, the way they would keep you know, time um, is it would be from like 6 a.m., and then you would just count the hours from 6 a.m. So the 10th hour from 6 a.m. would be 4 p.m., okay? So that's what they're saying here. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak, remember, they're chilling with Jesus, they're following him, he says, come and see where he's staying, he brings them with him, verse 40. One of the two disciples who heard John speak, again, John the Baptist, heard John the Baptist speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ, He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Okay, so this morning we're going to talk about two things in this this passage, okay? If you're taking notes, these are the two things you're going to want to write down. What the Messiah is and what the Messiah does, okay? Very, very simple. What the Messiah is and what the Messiah does. 
Now, Messiah is the English translation of the Hebrew word Messias. Okay, so the, the Hebrew word Messias translated into English is Messiah. Okay, that word rendered into Greek is Christos, which is Christ. Okay, so <clears throat> what I want you to understand here is they essentially mean the same thing. So when you hear Christ or you hear Messiah, they're essentially the same thing. Okay, uh, just for the record, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, it, it's a title. Okay, it's, it's, it's saying that he's the Savior. We're going to get into this in just a second. Okay, <clears throat> now the word Messiah or Christ, what it means is it means anointed. And to be anointed is to kind of like be marked as having an authority or a special function. Now, all throughout the Bible, there's like there's story after story of different people being anointed. I mean, they would even anoint like shields for battle. Okay, like they would, they would anoint the shield for battle. They would mark it for a special purpose. Are you tracking with this idea of anointing, marking something aside for a special purpose? Great. <clears throat> this morning, I don't want to talk so much about anointing stuff. I really want to focus in on, an, on the anointing of people because we're talking about Jesus and him being the anointed one, okay, him being the Messiah. Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures at all, you know there's like this, um, it happens pretty regularly. They would anoint people with oil, <clears throat> And it was the pouring the oil on a person. It was, it was symbolic of the outpouring of God's spirit. And this would be done as a sign of recognizing God's divine call on their life. Um, in 2016, so about two and a half years, it was February of 2016, um, Ebony and I, I took Ebony with me on, a mission, on like a missionary trip <clears throat> uh, and uh, a ministry trip. And I do probably two or three of these a year, um, international ones at least. And on this specific trip, it was a two-week trip. I was doing a, we were doing a week in Dubai in the Middle East and another week in South Africa. And part of the agenda was uh, I was leading worship. At, there was a conference in Dubai and another conference in Durban, South Africa. Actually, it was like the Drakensberg Mountains, I think. Uh, maybe that was a different trip. Sorry, I'm mixing up my trips. Either way, we're there for part of it was to, was to we're doing a three-day conference in each city and then just spending time with the churches, ministering to the churches, that kind of thing, okay? Preaching and teaching and leading worship and stuff. And on this specific trip, it was a unique season for Ebony and I because we really felt like God was stirring something in our heart. Like, I can't really describe it. We just felt like God was giving us a new burden, okay? Um, at this season, for us as a family, we had been in the second church plant in San Diego, church plant number two, for about a year, um, and we knew that our assignment there was a seasonal assignment to kind of get that thing off the ground, raise up some pastors, um, and, and, and just kind of see what God had for us next. But so God was stirring something in us as we were getting ready to embark on this trip. <clears throat> so we show up to the Middle East, um, and uh, we're at this conference, and I think it was day two of the conference, um, this man walks up to me. I've never met him before. He's from Sri Lanka, a wonderful, beautiful man, like his crazy story of God redeeming him out of like the Sri Lankan civil war and just crazy stuff. Um, he, leads, he leads like a handful of churches in Sri Lanka, in like Colombo. And he comes up to me, like I said, never met him before, and he just kind of stops, and he's like, starts talking to me, and he goes, I'm sorry. He's like, there's just such an anointing on your life right now. And I remember being like, that's anointing. That sounds pretty intense. Like, what's he going to say? So he's really just trying to encourage me. And then he shares what he feels like God is showing him for me. And he shares this picture that he has. And the picture involves an eagle, okay? I'm going to spare the picture. It's kind of, some of it's kind of personal. We can talk about it offline if you want to know. But he basically shares this picture. He says, you're such an anointing in your life. Shares this picture of an eagle for me and then prays for me. And I remember feeling like, whoa, this is intense. Went back to my journal right away. And I'm like writing this stuff down. Going, okay, I'm going to pray through this. Let's see if there's anything here. You know, is this really the Lord? And then about, I don't know, two hours later, we get out of one of the main sessions. Um, so I'm, I think I led worship, and I'm, I'm walking off the stage. I'm, me and Ebony are going to go like, get a cup of coffee in the lobby or something of, of the church that was hosting it. And this woman, again, never met her before, <clears throat> she comes up to us, um, and she's since become a really close friend, wonderful girl. She's, uh, she's uh, from London. And, and she walks up to us, and she again kind of has this startled look in her face, and she's like, 
I know we don't know each other, but like, I just have to tell you, like, there's such an anointing on your guys' life right now. And I'm like, did you talk to the guy, David? Like, what's going on, you know? And so she's chatting up with Ebony, and, um, and it, it was crazy. Like, she starts, you know, talking about the anointing. And then she goes, I, f- I feel like I have a picture. I feel like God kind of so- speaks to me through pictures sometimes. So I'm going to share this with you. Go ahead and pray on it. You know, I'm not saying, thus saith the Lord, but pray on it. She shares a picture, and it's almost identical, with, identical to what the guy David before her shared about the eagle and all this stuff. So Eb's crying. I'm like, this is bizarre. What is happening right now? Okay, this is all in one day, by the way, okay? Then, probably three hours later, we do like an afternoon breakout session with a room, I don't know, maybe this size, maybe a little bit bigger. And there's a couple who's leading this breakout session. They're in front of the room, the whole thing, and I'm like sitting like in the back, like where Matt's at. And, and um, uh, it's a husband and wife, they're, they're doing a training. And she stops, she stops the session. Like, so I'm like, hey guys, I'm really sorry. I have to do this right now. And she goes, Tom, uh, is Ebony in the room? And I was like, actually, I think she's downstairs at another session. There was a team that was with us, like Chad and Melissa were there. Colton and Mark were there. Uh, some other people were there. It was a great time. But either way, she was downstairs with some of them um, at another session. I'm like, ah, sorry, like, Eb's, I can get her if you want me to get her. Like, I'm thinking she, you know, something's going on. She goes, She's like, okay, this is being recorded, right? And they're like, yeah. She's like, okay, I just have to, I have to, I'm sorry, guys, I have to do this. And she goes, Tom, there's such an anointing on your life right now. And at this point, I'm like, okay, are you guys collaborating on this? Because this is getting ridiculous, okay? She stops the session. She says that. She has other stuff for Ebony. It was intense, okay? So that night, we're, I'm, I'm writing all this stuff down. I'm like, okay, I'm going to pray through all this. We get back to our host's home. One of the, one of the pastors in one of the local churches um, in Dubai was hosting us. We get back to the house, and his son had, has, had drawn us a picture. Really sweet young boy, probably like, I don't know, probably six or seven at the time. And the picture was of an eagle, and it basically was the picture that each of these people had like essentially prophesied over us. It was crazy. <clears throat> it was this, it was this, it was, it was like, I mean, like I said, Ebony and I, we're sensing that God was preparing our hearts for like a new assignment, right? So we go into this trip kind of like praying through things already, and God spoke through four different people. Actually, there's another story I didn't share with you, but for the sake of time, I'll tell you later. But he spoke through four different people <clears throat> on the other side of the planet. It was insane. And basically, God was confirming something. He was confirming that, in fact, God was calling us to something new. He was calling us to plant this church. It was clarity. It was confirmation. It was awesome. It was a time of anointing for us of being marked for a special purpose. Are you tracking with this idea of anointing, right? God was calling us to an important assignment, an important role. Now, here's the thing, friend. Like, you need to know that you have a unique special calling on your life as well. This isn't limited to, like, pastors and church planners. This is, this is every person created. There's a unique calling on your life. Let me ask you this. Do you know what it is? Like, are you aware? Do you know what your calling is? I'm convinced that most people view calling as like something that you do or like a role. Now, here's the thing. Don't get me wrong. Like, that's part of it, right? Like, what you do is part of it, but it's not the primary calling. What you do is not the primary calling because God does not primarily call you to a role or a job or even a place God primarily calls you to people. That's his heart. It's the people that he calls you to. It's the people that he calls you to that informs the role, it informs the assignment, it informs the place. Are you following me with this? Louder, if you are. Thank you. <clears throat> awesome. Okay, so a couple of examples. Like my marriage, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm called to Ebony. I'm called to her. She's the calling. The role in that calling is a husband. You see this. Think about like my kids, Amelia and Vivian. I'm called to them. They are a calling. The role in that calling is father. Okay, the same thing could be, I mean, we talk about the church, right? Like, I mean, here's the thing. God didn't primarily call us to Temecula. He didn't. He called me to you. 
Like, I'm, I'm, I'm called to you. The calling is you. The role in that calling is pastor, right? So God didn't primarily call me to be a pastor or to be a church planter. No, he, he called me to you. He called me to precious people, to love you, to serve you, to help you, to care for you. <clears throat> and my role, it ultimately serves my calling. But the role is not the calling. The calling is you. Okay, we can keep going. I mean, really quick on calling. Like, that's one of the main reasons why this church exists. <clears throat> to help people discern or, and walk in their calling. But here's the thing. Like the church, like we, we're going to preach this all the time. The church is not a business. It's not an event. It's not something you attend. The church is the family of God's people, okay? <clears throat> um, and one of the reasons that this church, the people exists is to help people discern and walk in their calling. But here's the thing. For the church to help you, we need to know you. Like it's, it, it's not going to work unless we know each other, right? <clears throat> Um, so here's the thing. I do want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to take the steps necessary to be known and to know others in the family of God, okay? If not restored church, that's fine. Another church, okay? If it, it doesn't have to be here. If you're a Christian, it doesn't have to be here. That's totally cool, but it has to be somewhere. It has to be somewhere, okay? Because there's a special calling on your life, friends, and that calling is people, Okay, we can keep moving. Back to anointing. So when the Bible speaks of an anointed person, remember that Hebrew word, Messias, when the Bible speaks of that, when it uses that word, it usually involved kings. So like, you know, King David, King Saul, King Solomon, other kings of Israel. What God would do is he would anoint them. He would, he would, he would mark them for a special purpose. He anointed them king. Okay. When the Bible speaks about the Messiah, it's referencing the anointed one. <clears throat> Not just another king, but like the king. In fact, the king of kings. Okay, the ultimate one. And guys, that's what the Jews, that's what they were waiting for. At the time of this writing, they're waiting for this Messiah, the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the king of kings. So they're looking for this future king, right? And they're looking to this future king ultimately to rescue them politically and to usher in a time of prosperity and a time of blessing. So the Jews, I mean, they're oppressed, especially at this time by the Romans and stuff. <clears throat> the Jews, they're anxious for this Messiah to show up because they want him to deliver them from the oppression that they're experiencing from other kingdoms, Real quick, this is kind of a tangent, but I think it's important. God promised to send the Messiah. It didn't happen overnight. You have like thousands of years. I mean, the Old Testament is full of, of messianic prophecies. The, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Savior is coming, the Deliverer is coming, the Anointed One's coming. God promised to send the Messiah, the Christ. So Christians in the room, I just want to talk to you for just a moment, especially those of you that like are waiting on God, especially those of you, um, you feel like God is distant maybe or absent in an area in your life. The Messiah coming, it means that even when things seem off, even when, even when like the timing scenes off, when it feels like God's late or it's frustrating, like the Messiah coming, it means that God keeps his promises. And I felt like this morning, <clears throat> praying over this, I felt like some of you guys need to be reminded of that. In a season of waiting that God keeps his promises no matter what. Okay, we can keep going here. So the Jews, right, they're looking to this coming Messiah, this coming king, to essentially like, be their deliverer, okay, to, to, to be their savior, to save them from the oppression of other kingdoms, and to deliver them into a life of prosperity. So they're saving and delivering. You got that? 
<clears throat> Here's the thing. All people everywhere are looking for the same exact thing. All people are looking for a Messiah. All people are looking for a Savior. All of us in the room at all times, we're looking for a Messiah, we're looking for a Savior to save us from where we are and deliver us to where we want to be. And here's the thing. I honestly believe that the prevailing modern-day Messiah, the prevailing modern-day Savior that people look to is money, is cash. Like, I haven't been a pastor forever, but I've been a pastor for almost a couple decades now. Uh, Well, not a couple decades, over a decade now. Math was way off on that one. (laughs) Whoa. So here's the thing. I genuinely recognize this pattern with people. Okay, And what I see, what I witness is people basically saying, like, I'm not content where I'm at, but more money would save me from where I'm at. It would save me from where I'm at and deliver me to where I want to be. That is looking to money as a savior. You see this. Save me from where I'm at, deliver me to where I want to be. That's essentially the same thing as a Messiah. It's essentially the same thing as a savior, right? But here's the thing. It's not just money that that we look to. I watch people, and I've struggled with this too, guys. Like, I'm no better than anybody in the room. I watch people do the same thing with a career. A career can save me from, like, you know, being mediocre, and it can deliver me into a life of purpose and meaning. I see it happen with romance all the time, okay? This person, this person, or this potential person, or a spouse, or a new spouse, or whatever it is, this person can save me from my loneliness and deliver me to being a desirable person. I mean, the list could go on forever of the things that we look to as a savior, as a messiah. What is it for you? What's your uniqueness Bending your, your sinful flesh, bending you towards looking to something as a, as a savior. What is it for you? Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's not a career. Maybe it's not romance. What is it for you? Here's what I want you to know. This is really important. <clears throat> Whatever you look to to save you will ultimately become your king. Whatever you look to to be your savior, to be your Messiah, will ultimately become your Lord. It becomes the authority in your life. It calls the shots. It controls you. One of the things that's crushing for me is I see this happen with children. And to be honest, I'm guilty of this. I see it happen with kids. A parent, they'll look to their child as their savior. Like to save them from lacking purpose and deliver them to a life of meaning or they'll look to their child for approval. Their heart craves approval, and as long as their child approves of them, as long as their child's not upset with them, as long as their child loves them, and instead of the parent exercising healthy and loving authority over their child, they operate out of fear. They fear their child. Because in their mind, the child being upset with them is like the worst-case scenario. So this child, it becomes their savior who can provide them the approval that they seek. And the result is that the child becomes the authority. The child starts calling the shots. The child becomes Lord. Um, I'll give you an example of this. A couple months ago, <clears throat> you guys know, some of, some of you guys know I was gone a couple months ago. Um, I was like a ministry trip, right? And I was, I'm on this long flight from LAX to Istanbul. Istanbul's in Turkey. It's right on the border of Europe and Asia. So I'm on this long flight, okay? It's a red eye. Like, it's long flights like that are just, they're terrible. <laughs> There's no fun. Like, you're sitting in this tiny little chair, whatever. But either way, I'm sitting on this flight. Just God, get me there. I'm over this. And two rows ahead of me, there's this young boy probably maybe seven years old, okay? And this young boy, uh, he starts demanding candy. It's like classic kid wanting candy, right? So he starts demanding candy. And then his mom is basically there with him and she's like, uh, she gets like apologizing to him. She's like, I'm sorry, I don't have any candy. Um, I don't have any candy, I'm sorry. And this starts to kind of escalate and he starts hitting his mom. He starts hitting his mom in the face. Like it was like... 
it, it, and here's the thing, like my kids have hit me. I'm not about to be that parent that's like, oh, get your kid under control. Like I've been hit in the face by both my kids multiple times, okay? So <laughs> this is not a like, I'm better, I'm a better parent, like get your act together thing. But this, this boy is punching his mom in the face. And then dad comes back from the bathroom. Dad comes back, from, I'm, I'm assuming he's in the bathroom, but he comes back, right? He wasn't there. And the kid's freaking out. And he, you know, I want candy. And he's like, he's screaming. Like, it wasn't like, oh, this is kind of a little tiff. It was like, the whole plane is like, oh, this is really awkward. So dad comes back and he's trying to get his kid under control. Kid starts hitting dad. Kid starts hitting dad in the face. And not just like the push-shove thing in the face, like full-on like haymakers Mike Tyson in the face, okay? So this kid is hitting his parents in the face. He's demanding candy. And then you see after this happened, I'm not kidding you, this happened for about a good like five to ten minutes straight. Then you see other passengers in the plane like trying to distract the boy, like some of the nicer moms like, hey, sweetie, like do you want to play? And like, because you could tell the parents are just having the hardest time, right? So these other passengers get involved trying to distract the kid. He starts getting violent with them. This kid, he's, it was crazy, okay? So you have mom getting hit, dad getting hit, other passengers getting hit. Here's what I'm thinking in my mind. In my mind, I'm like, this has to be a special needs issue. Like, I'm praying for the boy. I'm like, this has to be a special needs issue. Like I said, this has been happening for 10 minutes now at this point. Flight attendant comes up. She's like trying to calm him down. She's like, hey, does he have special needs? Is there some things that we can do? And the mom goes, oh no, he doesn't have any special needs. He's totally fine. And I'm like, oh no, oh no. And here's the thing, right? This goes on for, I'm not exaggerating, a good 25, 30 minutes, okay? They finally get him under control. I don't know what they did. They got him under control. And then, um, you know, if if you've ever been on a long haul flight, you get to the point where it's time to go to bed. They fed you dinner. They turn off the lights. They pass out blankets and they expect you to sleep in a tiny little chair like this big. So the lights are out. Everyone's trying to sleep. At this point, it's been a rough flight. I, I know better, so I always fly with earplugs and one of those like eye masks because I'm not about to, if I actually get any sleep on a plane, which I never do, if I get any sleep, I'm like, I don't want to be woken up, you know? <clears throat> and uh, I don't know how long, I, maybe I, fell, I knew I fell asleep, but I don't know how long I've been sleeping. I wake up to this kid screaming and demanding candy. <laughs> with earplugs in, okay? Pull my earplugs out. I'm like, okay, this is going down again. Like he's getting violent and screaming. At this point, (laughs) he's running up and down the aisles of the plane, hitting people as they're sleeping on the way, screaming and saying, I want candy. I'm not exaggerating with you. This isn't like one of those preacher stories that illustrated a point that didn't happen. This really happened. If you guys know Andy Rogers, he was with me. This is real. We both were like, this is insane. Okay, so he's running down the aisles. He's he's losing his mind. And here's the thing, guys. On a 12-hour flight, not once did did I witness the parents attempt to lovingly discipline him. Not once. Not once did they give him really any direction. Not once did they exercise authority in a healthy way over the boy. But the boy, on the other hand, He exercised unhealthy and inappropriate authority over his parents practically the whole flight. And here's here's the thing, guys. Like, it was terribly sad. It was so sad. Like, not just because this kid was beating up his parents and, you know, none of us on the plane could sleep, but because chances are that boy's going to grow up and he's going to continue to be violent and harmful to the people around him and to himself. that boy had stopped being their son and became their savior somewhere along the line. A savior who would provide them what they, could, what they really wanted, which was his approval. What you look to as a savior, it becomes your Lord. It controls you. It becomes the authority in your life. And here's the thing. The truth is that every single person with a heartbeat is looking for a savior. We all are. Okay, let's keep moving. Uh, In verse 36 here, John the Baptist, right? He says to two of his disciples, behold the lamb of God. 
And when he says that, what he's doing is he's making a messianic claim. He's saying Jesus is the Messiah, like the anointed one. He's making that claim. He's saying Jesus is the savior of sin and the deliverer from death. And then upon him saying that, two of his disciples start following Jesus. A disciple means learner. Like you're learning, you're following John. He's teaching you things. John the Baptist, right? Those guys that are following John the Baptist, they hear this claim from him and they start following Jesus, okay? And it's beautiful because John the Baptist, he shows us what effective discipleship really looks like. It's pointing people to Jesus, I know that's simple, but it's pointing to people to Jesus so that they transition from following you to following Jesus. The result is that the rabbi, you know, the teacher, the discipler, becomes less necessary over time. Why? Because the disciple's dependence shifts away from their discipler and onto Jesus. You see this? Great. So think about it. Like, if you're going to follow someone, like, to follow requires leaving something behind. I mean, think about, like, if, if after the gathering, you ask me, hey, Tom, come follow me outside quick. I want to tell you something. If I follow you outside, I'm no longer inside. Like, I've left something behind to follow you. You guys see this. Literally, to follow means leaving something. <clears throat> Effective discipleship results in following Jesus more closely over time. Like, that's the goal of the church. In in the family of God, that's the goal. And guess what? It should be the same in your household. The same thing is true. Like, your kids, right? Even if you don't have kids, it still applies. Your children, over time, depend on the parents less and less, and then start to depend on Jesus more and more. That's the goal. It's like a handoff, That's literally my responsibility as a million Vivian's daddy. Yes, they depend on me a ton. They follow me. But the goal is that they would depend on me less and less over time and more and more on Jesus to the point where then once they're an adult, the handoff is complete because they don't belong to me. God's entrusted them to me, but I'm a steward of them. They belong to him. They were created to follow him. Friends, that's, that's the goal here. That's literally the goal, like to work together. Listen, whether you are biological parents or not, to work together to make disciples of Jesus, all people, regardless of their age or stage of life, to make disciples of Jesus, and that includes our kids. Really quick, I'm going to take a drink of water because I feel like my throat is closing. Guys, these kids... <clears throat> They're all of ours. They really are. Like not whether or not you're biologically related to them, these children. Like listen, <clears throat> if you are part of this church family, we talked, about, we talked about calling earlier. We touched on it, right? How we're called to people. If you're part of this church family, these children are part of your calling. We're called to them to help make disciples out of them. Not to earn God's approval. We already have that. We do it genuinely out of love to serve them because the greatest thing we could ever do is help them to see the love of Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. <clears throat> so you gotta know that a portion of who you're called to is these children if this is part of your family. If you're not stoked you're here, get to know us. We're crazy, but we really are striving to be a loving family. Okay, back to these two disciples who leave John the Baptist and follow Jesus. Now we know from these passages that one of them is Andrew. Okay, they give his name. But the other one, we don't know who they are because it doesn't tell us their name. We don't know who for, for sure who they are. Um, most scholars believe that it's actually the Apostle John who's responsible for this gospel. <clears throat> they believe that it's him. Um, and in verse 41 here, Andrew goes and tells his brother Simon. Okay, remember he has this encounter with Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist makes a claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One. John goes spend some time with Jesus. After that, goes, yep, and then goes straight to his brother Simon. And he's like, we've found the Messiah. <clears throat> we found the anointed one, the savior, the deliverer, the, the king of kings. Okay, and he brings his brother Simon to Jesus. It's cool. Like, he shows us what effective evangelism looks like. <clears throat> it's simply telling someone about the Messiah, 
like the true savior, the true deliverer. That's what evangelism is. Here's the thing, guys. Everybody evangelizes about something. You do, just so you know. You evangelize about stuff all the time. Because here's the thing. Everybody's looking for a savior. So when you find a savior, you tell people about it. Like, I cannot tell you how many times in the last two weeks, and this isn't a dog on you at all if this is you. I can't tell you how many times in the last two weeks, because I've been, or three weeks, I've been like sick. People have been evangelizing essential oils to me all day long. <clears throat> okay, you evangelize, trust me. Or CrossFit, you gotta get into CrossFit. It's the greatest thing in the world. Or you have to implement this parenting strategy. Or like, for those of you guys that with a lot of pregnant moms, this birthing strategy, this, like, there's all these different things. Like, you gotta listen to this podcast. It's incredible. Or whatever. I mean, there's a hundred different things we can fill in, right? What I want you to see is what happens here with Andrew. John the Baptist tells him that Jesus is the savior. That's evangelism, okay? He's promoting a savior. Andrew, what does he do? He investigates it. He goes, okay, I'm gonna follow Jesus. I'm gonna check this out. He investigates it. He meets Jesus. He starts following Jesus and he concludes this Jesus is the Messiah. He is the savior. And then he tells someone he loves about Jesus. It's actually really simple. Because the message of the gospel is contagious. Like, it, it doesn't not spread if it's contracted. Listen, when you know Jesus as Savior, like when you know it, when you know him as Messiah, as Christ, you tell people about him. Just like when I, got, when I got this cold, when I contracted this cold, I was sneezing and snot and alien-like material was flying out of my face. When you, when, when you know Jesus as Savior, when you know him as Messiah, your evangelism becomes less about a new fad diet and it becomes more, behold, Jesus. You gotta see him. You gotta, you gotta experience Jesus. And one of my frustrations as a pastor, and one of the things that I've been guilty of, is too often I see the church trying to enforce things on people around them. Like they're police or something, like trying to enforce morality, trying to enforce religion. <clears throat> like, stop doing this. Stop doing that. You need, to, you need to knock that off. That's not, that's, that's wrong. And don't give me, like that needs to happen in the church for sure. For sure. We need to hold each other accountable. Like the one and others are explicit. But when it comes to people outside the church trying to enforce morality on people who don't subscribe to that morality, I don't get it. But guys, like here's the thing. We worship a person. We worship a person, not a list of do's and don'ts, not Christian culture or morality even. Like we worship him. It's Jesus. We worship Jesus. Evangelism is introducing people to a person in the same way that Andrew did. And here's the thing. You need to know this too. Like you don't have to have all the right answers. Don't get me wrong, I love the Bible. Apologetics, I eat it up. I think it's amazing. That's really important. Do not hear me say that. But you don't need that to evangelize. You don't have to have all the right answers. You don't even have to be really that impressive to bring people to Jesus. You just gotta know him. Okay, let's go to the second thing. I'm almost done, I promise. This one's much shorter. Let's talk about what the, or I'm sorry, what the Messiah does. Okay, so you have John the Baptist's disciples, right? They start following Jesus. And then in verse 38, Jesus turns and asks them a question. He asks them, what are you seeking? And basically what Jesus is asking is, what are you really after? Like, what do you really want? Um, I have some longtime friends who are so dear to me. 
and um, they did not grow up wealthy. <clears throat> um, and later on in life, they inherited some money. And what started happening was, I was talking to them about this, and what started happening was people they hadn't talked to in a long time started reaching out, which is cool, man. Like, you know, relationships and friendships is beautiful. So start reaching out and want to spend time together and all this kind of stuff. And I remember chatting with um, one of my buddies about this, and, and he said that they started to recognize a pattern. Started to recognize a pattern, um, and they're inc- incredibly generous people. <clears throat> but they started to recognize this pattern um, that when, when the old relationship started to reach out, you know, that when those people couldn't get access to the kind of money that they were looking for, like the phone calls kind of started to stop. And the reaching out kind of started to stop. And it became pretty clear, like, they didn't want to be friends, man. What they were really seeking was access to cash. And that's, that can be painful. I think in, in the case of my friend, it was. But when Jesus, when he asks these disciples, what are you seeking? Like, he's not even really asking for his sake to protect himself. Like, what do you really want from me? No, he's asking them for their sake. He wants them to be aware of the condition of their own heart. Like, do they want a transaction with Jesus? Like he's a genie? Or do they want him? Are they genuinely trying to investigate him? Are they genuinely trying to seek him? Now, don't get me wrong, right? Like Jesus... He comes with amazing perks. Okay, being a friend of God has incredible perks, like forgiveness of sin, like a brand new heart, eternal life, like God, the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. Like, friends, do you see what Jesus is really asking these guys? Can you see it? Like, he's asking them, what are you really looking to as a savior? What do you really want me or what you think I can get for you. And I wouldn't be loving you if I didn't ask you the exact same question that Jesus does. My friend, what do you want? Like, what do you really want? What are you truly after? What are you seeking? So the disciples, their response to that question was, Rabbi, where are you staying? Um, A theologian, William Barclay, he wrote this epic commentary. It's massive on the Gospel of John. Uh, He says this, quote, They called him Rabbi. That is a Hebrew word which literally means my great one. It was the title of respect given by students and seekers after knowledge to their teachers and to wise men. Regarding asking Jesus where he was staying, it was not mere curiosity which made these two ask this question. Listen to this. What they meant was that they did not wish to speak to Jesus only on the road in passing as chance acquaintances might stop and exchange a few words. They wished to linger long with him and talk out their problems and their troubles. Those who would be Jesus' disciples can never be satisfied with a passing word. They want to meet Jesus, not as an acquaintance in passing, but as a friend in their own homes. Guys, I want you to see how Jesus responds to people when they seek him. No matter how jacked up they are, no matter how long it's been, no matter what, I want you to see how Jesus responds to people who seek him. He embraces them every single time. He invites them to be with him. Because Jesus, God in the flesh, desires a relationship, not a transaction. My friend, what about you? How do you approach Jesus? That's not a fair question. How are you approaching Jesus today? Relationally or transactionally? Like a genie or like a true friend. And when I say genie, I'm not talking about genie Stewart. I mean genie in a bottle. All right, I'm gonna close with this. I'm almost done. I'll call the band up. Okay, 
Look back at verse 42 really quick. I'm almost done, I promise. I know it's getting hot. Look back at verse 42. Andrew, you know, he brought his brother Simon to Jesus, right? Verse 42 says, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him, looked at Simon and said, you are Simon, the son of John. Again, another, a different John, not the apostle John, not John the Baptist. You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Okay, quickly, I'm gonna get into the Greek here where it says, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Cephas is Aramaic, okay? Peter is Greek. They both mean the same thing. They both mean rock, okay? Like a foundation, rock. And where it says Jesus looked at him, he's looking at Simon, where it says looked, the Greek word there is emblepo, okay? And describing emblepo, you know, looked, one scholar says this, quote, it describes a concentrated, intense gaze, the gaze which does not see only the superficial things that lie on the surface, but which reads a person's heart. When Jesus, listen to this, when Jesus saw Simon, as he was then called, he said to him, your name is Simon, but you're going to be called Cephas, which means rock. Guys, one of the most beautiful things about Jesus is how he looks at us. Like he doesn't just see what we are. He also sees what we were created to become. I think many of you are familiar with Simon's story. Um, some of you may not be, but Simon's story, like, you know, he, he was a simple fisherman, Okay? And then he encounters Jesus. And he changes. Simon becomes, he goes on to become the Apostle Peter. He becomes the leader of the early church, he becomes the rock on which God's church is built on. And Jesus saw that the first time he met him. In college, I had an art class. And um, I remember this specific story about uh, the famous artist Michelangelo. And some of you guys, I'm sure, have heard this story. Um, When he would work on sculptures, he would take this massive slab of rock, this massive slab of marble, right? and he would start kind of chiseling it and chipping away at it, right? And when he was asked, you know, like how he approached his sculptures, what he said was, I'm releasing the person imprisoned in this marble. He saw them in the huge slab of rock and he released that person imprisoned in that marble. My friend, that is Jesus' agenda with you. When he looks at you, he doesn't just see you the way that you are. He doesn't see you as not enough. He doesn't see you as ugly. He doesn't see you as a disappointment. He sees what's hidden in the marble, man. He sees your potential. He sees the you that you were created to be. Guys, the claim being made in these verses is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Savior. He's the Deliverer, the King of Kings. And my friend, this same Jesus desires a relationship with you. But why? Because he loves you and because he's the only savior who can transform you into the person that you were created to be. He's the only one who can save you from who you are and deliver you into who you were created to be. Do you see this? Guys, he's not like the false saviors we look to, money, career, romance, fill in the blank. Jesus is the only savior, the only king who actually uses his authority for your benefit. 
He's the only Savior, the only Lord who lays his life down. Guys, at the cross, Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the King of kings, sacrifices himself. And what's his agenda? His agenda is to save, to deliver you through a relationship with him. Guys, Jesus is the true Messiah. And he wants you. It's crazy. Will you stand if you're able and pray with me? Oh, God, thank you that all of us in this room belong to you. That's comforting. That brings security. And I love that it's not dependent on what we do. Just as my kids, my love for them is not dependent on their behavior. My love for them is dependent on the truth that they're my child. She's my daughter. So I thank you for your daughters and sons in this room. And that no matter what their behavior, no matter how much they resist or do their own thing or look to false saviors, that you're patient and you're loving and your love doesn't waver an inch. So Spirit of God, I pray just right now in this moment that you would show us the things, the areas that we're stuck, the the, the false saviors that we look to, and that we'd actually be able to receive your grace and forgiveness for rejecting you as the Savior. And that grace and that forgiveness that you so readily avail, so readily available to us because of the cross, I pray that that would provide so much freedom for these men and women. So much freedom. That they wouldn't be lorded over by these false saviors that try to control them. The pursuit of money, the pursuit of romance, the pursuit of fill in the blank, comfort, control, power, but that we would, we would see you as the, the king that you are, the king who lays his life down, who uses his authority for our good. I want freedom for my brothers and sisters. I want freedom for me, and we have it in Jesus. So I pray that each one of us in this room would grab a hold of it, that we would actually believe and receive that the cross is for me. Bring freedom, God. We love you. Thank you. In your holy name, Jesus. Amen.